This morning we are continuing in the book of First Peter, which means you can turn to Psalm 34. Did it again. There is a good deal of debate within Christian circles about whether the gospel actually requires or merely suggests good works. There are some folks who believe that they can live any way they want and that their behavior doesn't matter. That is a theology that's out there running around. But again, you're going to see from Peter's own pen this morning that he is going to interweave the concept of good behavior, even good citizenship, right along with the fundamental ideas of the gospel. He's going to go right back to the basics. Christ died for your sins. That is basic Christianity 101. But he's going to bring that up in the midst of saying, watch your behavior. And he's going to say, Christ is your example but watch how you react while you're out there among the Gentiles. Now, remember again that he is writing to scattered Jews. That's his primary audience, the diaspora. These Jews, these scattered believers, are scattered among the Gentile nations, and Peter's advice is, while you're scattered among the Gentile nations, watch your behavior while you're among the Gentiles, because the Gentiles don't think well of you. Gentiles speak poorly of you, and they will lie on you, and they will say all manner of evil against you. So the way that you should counteract their evil reports of you is by being so good that your good behavior shows the lie to their accusations against you. So as we go through this, certainly we'll see parts of it that are applicable to us. Certainly these are very good principles to live by that we as Christians in the world ought to live in such a way that nobody can say anything against us, that nobody can bring up any accusation against us because our behavior is kept in line by the fact that God is holy and his Holy Spirit resides in us governing our behavior and that ought to be a demonstration to the people who see us. It is in this context that Peter's going to say, be ready to give a defense. Be ready to speak about Jesus to everybody who asks about the hope that is within you. Well, obviously, people aren't going to ask about the hope that is within you if they don't see the hope that is within you. And so you ought to walk through your life in such a way that you are clearly different, you are clearly hopeful, you are clearly faithful, and that you are willing, like Christ did, to suffer the indignities of this world and yet not rail back at people, not yell back, not blame back, not insult back, that you ought to be different people. You ought to be a unique people. You ought to be the people of God, which will cause people to say, what's different about you? Why are you like that? And then Peter says, and be ready at that point to give an appropriate defense for why it is that you're like that. So contextually, what we're going to look at this morning is Peter saying to the diaspora, to the scattered Jews, watch your behavior out there while you're scattered among the Gentiles. Your behavior is going to demonstrate the lie of the things that they're going to try to say against you. Now, you also have to remember at this point in time, as they are scattered among the Gentile nations, the Gentile nations are under Roman dominion. And among Greco-Roman society and Greco-Roman king worship, they believe that their Caesar sitting in Rome is God. And so now you have these folks, the diaspora, who not only have that Jewish history of there's only one God, but now they're believing Jews, so they're adhering to the Trinity, they are adhering to Christ as God, they are filled with the Spirit of God, they are worshiping the one God, and all of that is considered subversive by Rome. Rome considers all of that to be a direct opposition to their idea of Caesar as God. And so naturally, the Gentiles are going to start spreading lies about the Jews, about the diaspora. 
because that, to this very day, is the quickest way for, dare I say, weak-minded people to argue against people they disagree with. The quickest way to argue against somebody you disagree with, we see it in politics all over the place today, the quickest way to argue is not to argue the point, not to debate the actual distinctives or ideas or philosophies that are being bandied about. The quickest way to argue is just to insult the other person. Just say you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. And you have a face only a mother could love and she finds it difficult. And you just say things like that and then you don't ever have to address the actual content of the other person's argument. Well, that's the same thing that was going on here. The Jews were being persecuted and insulted time and again without a cause. But Jesus had said, you're going to be hated without a cause. They hated Jesus without a cause. Therefore, the people who belong to Jesus will be hated without a cause. Anybody want to testify? Because that's still true here in this time, here on this planet. If you adhere to Christian principles, if you love God, if that is a priority in your life and you're willing to live like it, then people are going to call you names. They're going to insult you. They're not going to address the content of what you believe. They're not going to address the biblical realities or the historical realities that exist. They're just going to call you bigots or they're going to say you need a crutch or they're going to say, well, I'm smarter than you. Or they're going to say the good thing about science is that science is true whether you believe it or not. And they think that contradicts Christianity as if Christianity is just sort of dumb and just unthinking. So so Peter is addressing that. Peter is saying you believing Jews are going out into the Gentile world and you're going to be insulted. And people are going to put you down and people are going to revile you. What should your response be? His answer is Don't answer them the way they speak to you. Don't revile back. Don't insult back because Christ is your example. And as much as he was insulted and reviled, he did not answer back. Like a sheep, he was led dumb to the slaughter. We read that all the way back in Isaiah. That was part of the prophetic value of how we were going to recognize the Christ when he came on the planet, that he was going to be hated, he was going to be reviled, he was going to be killed, and yet he wasn't going to answer back. Now, in Jesus' case, when it comes to not answering back, with Jesus, words are things. If he had said to the people who were beating him or nailing him to the cross, if he had said, stop it, they would have stopped the very same way that he walked on the waves of the sea or the other time that he was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And they came to him and said, Master, don't you care that we perish? And he woke up and walked upstairs and rebuked the wind, walked upstairs. Well, he was sleeping underneath. We're going to assume there were stairs. He went up the ladder. I don't care. Somehow he went up to the deck and he And he rebuked the wind and he rebuked the storm and it calmed down immediately. That's the kind of power and authority he has. So if he had said to the people who were persecuting him, stop it, they would have. Because with him, words are things. When he says this happens, this has to happen. He is the voice, not only of sovereign God, but of prophetic God. Whatever he says actually has to come to pass. Therefore, when it was time for him to fulfill all those prophecies and scriptures about his own death, he had to necessarily be quiet in order for it to happen. Because as soon as he spoke against it, it was going to cease happening. Okay, that's the power and authority that Jesus has. And if you have the grace of God, if you have the spirit of God, if you have the authority of Christ on your side, then you know that in the end of all of this, you win. You know at the end of all of this, God is going to take you home. Christ is going to arrange it in such a way that you will stand before the holy, holy, holy God and you will be spotless and unblemished. You're going to live eternally in the presence of the God who encased himself in a light that no man approaches. All I'm getting at here is if you have the power of God, you win. If you know that you win in the end, then really do you need to convince some goofball on Facebook who wants to take a shot at you? Some stranger you don't know who wants to say you Christians are weak. If you know that you have the power of God, then 
then you don't have to respond to those kind of attacks. I had a friend many, many years ago, those of you who have ever taken martial arts can correct me if this is wrong, but I had a friend many, many years ago uh, who was a black belt in karate. And when I asked him about the discipline that he was into, he said, uh, I never fight. I never, ever fight. And I said, yeah, but man, if you ever got in a fight, you'd, you'd like clean up on him. And he said, exactly, that's why I don't have to fight. In my mind, I've already won the fight. I already know that if I wanted to fight with that person, they would lose, they would lose badly. Because I already know that, I don't have to prove it. I don't have to go do it. And I thought that was a wonderful philosophy, and of course I applied that to Christianity. If you already know that you've won the fight, you don't have to prove it. You don't have to show somebody else. You just have to show them the grace of God, the kindness of God. You have to demonstrate to them that our Savior is a perfect Savior who is altogether lovely, and you don't have to take it on yourself thinking that you now have to defend God like his honor or his power or his reputation is at stake unless you jump in there and defend him. Instead, you can know when people insult you that they are insulting the almighty God and that's who they're going to have to deal with. So you know that the fight is already settled and you don't have to settle it. Does that make sense? Yes, I asked it a few times last week. I'll ask it again. Am I alone up here? No. Okay. Well, actually, you are. But actually, I am. So are you all in Psalm 34? Peter is going to quote directly from this psalm. So I thought we'd read it because it's a beautiful and instructive psalm, and it even has some messianic principles and prophecies built into it. And then Peter is going to pick up from this psalm as he's telling the Jews to watch their behavior out there among the Gentiles. Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 
the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, you may have seen earlier, verse 8, when Peter said, if you have indeed tasted that the Lord is good, that's a direct reference to verse 8 of this psalm. But now Peter, still thinking along the lines of that psalm, is going to bring up who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That is the passage from this psalm that Peter is going to make reference to because Peter is well versed in the Old Testament. And I like the fact that Peter continually grounds his theology and his teaching in what the Bible actually says. That's an example to all of us that we ought to constantly ground our theology in what the Bible says. You can turn now to 1 Peter. That ends the introduction. It technically does not count against my time. We're going to start at chapter 2, verse 1, and that will take us right into the new stuff. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for those who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of your visitation. We ended there last week, and I told you that was episcope, that last word, during the time that you're occupying office out there among the Gentiles. Be the example. Be to them so kind, so good in your deeds, and now he's going to say, be such a good citizen, that it's going to expose the lie in all the things wherewith they would accuse you. And so that takes us to verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, the reason that I did all that introduction building up to verse 13 was so that you would see the context of verse 13 because it is very common for people just to read verse 13 and 14 completely out of context and apply it like this. 
Christians, you need to submit yourself to every civil authority because that's what the Bible says to do, except that Peter is writing specifically to the diaspora, the Jews who are in a hostile territory among the Gentiles who are denying Caesar worship and being spoken evil of. And Peter's response to them in that context, in that melu, he then says to them, so then honor the authorities. Be good citizens. Here's what he has written. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So why are you doing it? For the Lord's sake. Now, Peter's going to go on from here. By the time he gets into the next chapter, he's going to say, women, submit to your husbands. And he's going to say, husbands, look after your wives. And he's even going to use language that is very unpopular today, where he's going to say, look after your wives because she's a woman, the weaker vessel, which makes women kind of bristle these days. (laughs) But the overriding principle here is do this for the Lord's sake, not for your sake, not for the civil society's sake, not for sake of any worldly philosophy, but do these things, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Now, you've got to figure that it had to be very, very difficult for the diaspora, for the Jews, to listen to people who don't know them, who hate them simply because they are Jews, and to find out that they are spreading all kinds of lies about them, saying all manner of evil about them. It's got to be very difficult for them to submit to that, to not want to defend themselves. Remember, these are human beings walking around in shoe leather. Of course they want to defend themselves. Of course they want to bark back. Of course they want to trade insult for insult. Of course they want to say, but there's only one God and he's not Caesar and we want to cause civil unrest and we want to be rioting in the streets because we have a cause. So therefore, we're going to have a march and we're going to do these. And Peter's response is, for the Lord's sake, Don't be like that. So the overriding principle in all the stuff we're about to read about submission is based in for the Lord's sake. Now, how can it be for the Lord's sake? Well, it's because he's the one that made us all. And he knows how he made us. So he knows how everything works best. And if we will just follow his instruction and his principles, we're going to find our lives working in uh, accordance with what he has said and what he has instructed. And therefore, our lives are just going to be, for lack of a better word, easier. But when we buck against that, when we say, okay, God says, be peaceable and don't insult people back. But me, I'm, I, my ego, I've been insulted and someone said something bad to me, I'm going to talk back. Well, then what happens? Well, then you end up in all kinds of fights. And then you end up with knots in your stomach. And then you're not able to sleep at night because, well, he said to me, and by golly, I should have said to him. And But the fact is, if you just follow the principles that Christ lays out, that God lays out, and do it for the Lord's sake, you're able to lay your head down at night and go ahead and sleep because you realize that he has these things handled. He is defending his own people. He is the shepherd of the sheep. You don't have to fight your own fight. His rod, his staff, he'll take care of the wolves and the lions. You just be sheep. You just have some grass and walk around talking about Baha, and and you'll be fine because he knows what he's doing. So Peter would say, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority, or to governors, as sent by the king, for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. Okay, so here's the first real practical advice to them. You know, if you live right and you do right, you don't have to fear the king or the governors. If you're riding in the streets, they're going to lock you up. If you're causing all kinds of unrest, they're going to lock you up. They're just looking for an excuse So that they can say, see, I knew it. You Jews and all the trouble you cause, now you've infiltrated our society and you're causing all kinds of trouble. Just lock them up, kill them, get rid of them. He says the governor and the king 
are a terror to those who are causing trouble, but they're not going to be a terror to you if you do right. Therefore, for the Lord's sake, do right. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Look at verse 15. For such is the will of God. Now, Peter's going to say this a couple of times. He's going to spell out what the will of God is in this context. While you're out there among the Gentiles and they're saying all kinds of evil against you, here's the will of God. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Okay, let's take a quick poll. Don't we really enjoy foolish men? (laughs) The ignorance of foolish men. You can find them 24 hours a day on Facebook and YouTube and all over the internet and And man, when they decide to come after you and they decide to say all manner of silliness and foolishness against you, what's your immediate instinct? It's to sit down at the keyboard and say, well, I'll show you. I'll answer everything you've said about me. Defend yourself, defend yourself, defend yourself. That's just our natural human instinct. Here's the will of God. The will of God is that you shut their mouths In their foolishness, you put a stop to that by simply being so much better than they expected you to be. And that quiets the foolishness of these silly people who are going to insult you, who are going to cast all sorts of aspersions at you. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, very counterintuitive. That is not the way we think. We think you silence foolish men by yelling at them and telling them to be quiet and starting with, you don't know me and you don't know anything about me and you better shut up and I'm going to show you where you're wrong and I'm going to, I'm, the people on the internet can't see that I'm typing with my fingers while I'm saying that because that seems to be where most of the arguments take place these days. But here is the will of God. Do good. Because by doing right... You silence the ignorance of the foolish people who don't know what they're talking about. Act as free men. Now we have to talk for just a moment about Greco-Roman society. In Greco-Roman society, there were free men, either born free or they had purchased their freedom. And then there were servant classes. And there was no middle class in Greco-Roman society like we have today. There were either merchants who were owning things and making money, and, or there were people in governance or people who were ruling the rest of the people, or there were the masses of the unwashed masses that were being ruled over. The reason that there were so many people in the underclass is because they just never had the opportunity to become part of the ruling class, and therefore the ruling class could end up enslaving them because they had to have some kind of money in order to eat and to buy food and to take care of their families, and so they would become indentured servants to the ruling class. So there was no middle class. Now, to be a freeborn Roman citizen is about as good as it gets which is why Paul was able to appeal his case all the way to Caesar because he had been abused by the Roman guards and he was able to say, I appeal because I'm a free-born Roman citizen. And the Roman guard that was with him said, I bought my freedom at a very high price. Paul argued, I'm free-born. And so because he was a free-born Roman citizen, he had rights. But if you were part of the underclass, if you were part of the servant class, you had no rights. You were just chattel. You were to be servant to whoever it was that owned you. And Peter's going to get into that in just a moment. When he says, be like free men, he's talking about be like in your Christianity, in the way you're acting, in the way you're behaving. Be like the free citizens who don't have to prove anything. You don't have to fight to prove anything because you are a freeborn Roman citizen, the same way that Paul could say, I appeal all the way to Caesar because I'm freeborn. And the guards, when they found out that he was a freeborn citizen, backed off him immediately because this man has rights. 
but they didn't think he had any rights, so they felt free to beat him before they knew he was a citizen. Okay, so Peter, in that kind of Greco-Roman society, is saying, be like free men. Be like people who have rights. Be like people who have a citizenship in heaven where you are free because of God, but don't use that freedom that you have as a covering for your evil deeds. But use your freedom as bond slaves of God. That almost sounds, again, counterintuitive because he says, be free. You're free in God. You're free from the law. You're like free men in the society. You don't need to prove anything. You don't need to argue back. Be completely free, but don't use your freedom for any evil intent. Instead, use your freedom to make yourself a bond slave. I talk a lot about Christian freedom. And one of the things that I keep pointing out is that Christian freedom also gives you the freedom to say no. Christian freedom gives you the freedom not only to allow things, but to disallow things. I'll give you an example so you know what I'm talking about. It's perfectly okay for me to, let's say, drink alcohol if I wanted to. I don't want to. I don't drink alcohol. But if I was together with one of you and we were out to dinner and you decide to have a glass of wine, I'm not going to go, I thought you were a Christian. It's perfectly okay for you to drink some alcohol. There's no prohibition against it in the Bible. It says, don't be drunk with alcohol. But it also doesn't say anything against the drinking of some alcohol. So, okay, with that being the case, Since I have that freedom, and since I could effectively argue that I have that freedom, part of that freedom that I have is also the freedom to say no. Because even though I have the freedom to drink alcohol, I equally have the freedom not to. And neither of those intrudes on my absolute freedom. And so Peter is saying, be like free men who are so free, free in God, that you are going to submit yourself and subject yourself to God so that you are a bond slave. There's the two categories, free men, bond slaves, upper class, lower class. There's nothing in the middle. And he used both those examples to say, be like free men, but use your freedom to be like bond slave men. And then if you truly are worshiping, if you truly are following after, if you are truly committed to God, if you are truly committed to Christ in the way that he made himself utterly subservient for your sake, then you're going to reflect that in the way you live and you're not going to use the freedom, that magnificent freedom, that radical freedom that you have in Christ, you're not going to use that as an excuse for your own evil intents. Instead, you're going to use that freedom in order to say no to the worldly lust so that you can be bond slave to Christ. You get it? What a brilliant argument. As free men... Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. So look what he just did in that verse. He just mixed civil authorities with your religious responsibilities. Because not only are you to love the brotherhood, the brethren, the Christians. Not only are you to fear God, which is the very beginning of wisdom, but it starts with honor all men and honor the king. Honor all men. Honor all men. It's easy for us to think, yeah, but some people just rub me the wrong way. Some people are just full of ignorance and they're just foolish people. And I just want to punch him in the face. But he says, honor all men. Now, we can't do that after the flesh. We just can't do that. That's not in our nature. We don't have the ability to be like that. The only reason you would be like that is for God's sake. That you would recognize, okay, because there's a larger principle at work here. 
something larger than myself, something more important than myself, for God's sake, I'm going to submit myself and I'm going to honor all men. What is it that Josiah read for us this morning out of Philippians 2? Consider all men as better than yourself. Look after the things of others and not only on your own things. Consider other men better than yourself. Do we do that? Anybody want to raise a hand and say, yeah, I got that. I'm, I'm all over that. I'm totally on that. You can count on me, Jim. I'm doing that one. Yeah, it's just not in our nature. And so there has to be a higher cause, a higher reason. It has to be the spirit of God within us. It has to be the command of God in his word. And it has to be the realization that we are doing these things to honor God. We're doing these things sacrificially, not even sacrificially to the other person, but sacrificially before the God we honor. And so honor all men, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. Servants, okay, these are the lower class. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those that are unreasonable. Okay, now Peter's gone too far. (laughs) We were kind of with him so far. But now he says, servants... You of the diaspora who have been sold into some sort of bondage, you now have to serve your master. And if he's a good guy, if he's easy to get along with, if he's friendly and kind, well, then good for you. But if he's bad to you, if he's mean to you, nevertheless, Peter's argument is submit yourself to him. Why? Again, we can't do this. Why would we do it? For God's sake. That has to be the overriding principle. This has to be for God's sake. And so that, of course, since we are talking about the diaspora here, so that those people, those masters, those evil people will eventually ask you, what is this hope that's in you? Why are you different? I I mean to my other slaves, and they rebel against me. And I mean to you, and, and you continue to be subservient to me, what is it about you? Well, then that gives you the opportunity to give a defense for the hope that is within you. So this is all tying together. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Why? Verse 19, for this finds favor with who? He's going to say it again. He's going to bring it up again. This finds favor with God. So that is the overriding principle. Do this for God's sake. This finds favor with God. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when he's suffering unjustly. This isn't talked about a lot. But it's a reality, according to Peter, remembering again that all of the apostles suffered all kinds of indignities. They all died as martyrs, with the possible exception of John. And so he knows what he's talking about. He's already encountered the stoning of Stephen. and He's already encountered the, the killing of James. So he knows firsthand that Christians are suffering terribly. And yet he would say, this finds a kind of favor, a kind of grace with God, if for the sake of your conscience toward God, you bear up under these sorrows when you're suffering unjustly. None of the apostles were killed. Stephen certainly wasn't killed for any just cause. Jesus himself wasn't killed for any just cause. They brought in false witnesses to testify against him so that they could kill him. And Peter's argument is it finds favor with God when you know you're being treated unjustly and yet you continue to suffer and you suffer the indignity with a mind toward God recognizing that he already has this. He already has handled this. He has already judged this. That this thing is not just going to happen in a vacuum. That the judge of all the earth is going to make these things right. 
So this finds favor with him. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when he's suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are treated harshly, then you endure that with patience. In other words, there's no credit to you. If you go out and rob a bank and kill a couple people and you wind up in jail and you go, oh, I hate this prison cell. The answer is, oh, don't rob a bank and kill people. Then you don't have to argue about the prison cell. Don't complain about the way you're being treated if you're being treated that way because of your own rebellion. That's Peter's argument for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. You get no credit for that. But if you do what is right and you suffer for it and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it. Well, this finds favor with God. So he's brought up this idea of favorability with God yet again, if indeed You are suffering not because of anything you did, not because of anything that's your fault, but you are suffering for having done good. This is something that we still deal with, we still struggle with. Out here in society, we do try to be good. We try to be different. And yet you hear all the time about different regions of the country, and certainly up in Canada now, up in Canada, eh? All the time you hear about people who, all they did was something right. All they did was protest abortion, or all they did was try to help somebody who the government said, no, no, we'll help them, we don't need your help. All you did was something right, and then you're afflicted for it. And he says, if you are afflicted though you did what's right, that finds favor with God. It's God who planned it. It's God who determined that you were going to go through this thing. And it's God who determined that your rightness was also going to be tried and your faithfulness was going to be tried in this way. How do I know that? Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. So God has called you. God has brought you to himself so that he can use you as a living example on planet Earth. He's put you out there among the world so that the world can see your good deeds and glorify God because they see your good deeds. And then they're going to persecute you because of your goodness. And by the way, one of the reasons that the world persecutes you for your goodness is that when you actually are good, that proves to them that you actually are trying to be kind or generous or do a good thing, which is like a bright red flag waving at them saying, you know, you could have been like this, but you just weren't. And they don't like that, so they want to shut that down. They want to close that off. They want to make sure that nobody else sees that. But if you go out and do your works of righteousness and suffer for it, you were called for this purpose. Why? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now he's quoting from Isaiah 53 there, but the point he's making is Christ was on the planet and did nothing worthy of the beatings and the way they beat him in the face and plucked out his beard and spit on him and paraded him through the streets with a chunk of wood on his back, the way they nailed him to the cross, the way he died an ignominious death between two robbers. He didn't deserve any of that. He was the only good man that ever walked in shoe leather. What he deserved was for people to worship him. What did he get? Well, he got all kinds of pain and suffering. Though he had committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. So if he, in that situation, could suffer quietly, could suffer for the sake of God, well, then who are you to think that you shouldn't suffer for the goodness of God And for the sake of your own Christian witness, of course you're going to suffer for that. So Peter's argument is, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering... He uttered no threats, 
but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Christ submitted himself to God. Therefore, Peter's call is that you submit yourself to God for God's sake as a bond servant of God. And your example is Christ, who left you an example that though he was completely sinless, though he was completely right, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in, in return. And when he was suffering, he didn't utter any threats. What kind of threats could the Lord of glory, the maker of all things, utter if he wanted to? I mean, he said to the Pharisees, okay, that's sin right there. That's not going to be forgiven in this age or the age to come. That's a threat. He could say, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a threat. If he wanted to threaten, if he could make all of nature do his bidding, what kind of threat could he lay out? I mean, he walked up to a tree one day that didn't have figs on it, cursed the tree, and the next day it was dead. You don't think he could have done that to everybody who accused him falsely? He could have accused everybody right back to their face he could have threatened them and they all would have ended up dead and ultimately under his judgment he knows how to threaten but he didn't say a thing he didn't threaten anybody he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously to God who is the judge which is why I kept stressing when you get in these situations where people are treating you unkindly or unjustly, you don't have to defend yourself because you know that you've already won because you know the judge of all the earth is already on your side and he's going to take care of this. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will recompense. He's going to take care of that. He's going to defend you. He may not be doing it the way you want him to do it at this very moment. But when it's all said and done and you end up in glory and they end up under judgment for the way that they have persecuted you, well, then you're going to realize that he was able to uh, level the playing field a whole lot better than you would have been able to. So we're nearly done. And he, all of a sudden he gets real theological and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay, so he's taken his theology, which is our sin is placed on Christ, and then he's turned it into behavior so that we will die to our sins and live to righteousness because our sins are all on him when he died on the tree. Therefore, we ought to reckon ourselves dead to our sins and reckon ourselves to be alive to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Now, let me say real quickly. I doubt if I can say anything real quickly. I'm going to try it. Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds we are healed. And I have argued for many, many years that Isaiah uses the language of wounding and healing. And he says that Israel has been wounded by God. And then through the stripes of the Messiah, we are healed. So he's talking about national identity. He's talking about the wounding and healing of the nation, the scattering and the rejoining of the nation. When he says that by Christ's wounds, we are healed, he's talking about in a national capacity. And he's not talking about the way this verse is so often misused. He's not talking about you being healed from every disease you ever had because Christ bore all your sins. That simply isn't the way it's understood, and it's not the way Peter understood it. Notice that when he quoted that verse from Isaiah 53, he did not say, by his wounds you are healed, therefore you're better now, you're never going to get sick, and if you ever have a cold, name and claim your health, and you're going to be fine. It doesn't say any of that, Instead, he puts it in the context of he bore your sins and that's how you were healed. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were wounded badly by your transgressions. But by his stripes, you're healed so that you can die to your sin and live to righteousness. That's where Peter and how Peter uses that verse. So we have to recognize that that is the New Testament commentary 
on that Old Testament verse and stop thinking that every time we get sick, we should confess Isaiah 53. Well, by his wounds, I'm healed. Well, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about healing from the sin that was killing us. And so by his wounds, you are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. I like that phrase. Yeah, you've returned to the shepherd. He's the one that watches after you. He's the one that takes care of the lions and the wolves and the foxes. You just be sheep. You just stay inside the sheepfold. The shepherd will take care of you. But he's also the guardian of your souls. Day and night, the Bible says, day and night, Satan is up there accusing the brethren to the throne of God. Day and night we're being accused before God. And as I like to point out and frequently have, usually when he accuses me or any of you, he's usually right. He's got you dead to rights. And yet the Bible says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the guardian of your soul. He's the one up there arguing your case. I like the fact, and I've said this with humorous intent in the past, but it's also a reality that I really like. The simple fact is our lawyer, our advocate, which is what the word advocate basically means, our lawyer is the judge's son, which means that he has access to the judge all the time. He's not just a hired hand to argue your case. He's not George. Sorry, George, I had to do that. (laughs) No, he is our advocate with the Father. So just as Satan is accusing us and saying he's wrong and he's wrong again. Did you see what he did? Did you see that? Have you noticed the way he did that or the way he said that? Or have you that we have the advocate there with the Father who died for us? So then we can say exactly what Paul said, who's going to lay anything? to the charge of God's elect. Because it's God, he goes on to argue, that justified us. So he's not going to accuse you. It's Christ that died, yea, that is risen again. He did all that, as Peter just said, to put away your sin debt and your sin problem. You're going to stand before God fully justified, spotless, unblemished, because of the finished, complete work of the Savior. He is, in fact, the guardian of your souls. He, in fact, is going to get you from where you are now all the way to your heavenly destiny. But in between, Peter says, it is ordained that we live through these trials here on the planet, whether it was the diaspora having to deal with the Gentiles that hated them, or whether it's us as Christians having to deal with the fact that the world hates us. Nevertheless, that's what God's plan was for our lives, and this testing of our faith is going to be more precious than gold tried in the fire. And ultimately, it's going to redound to our salvation. And what, I ask again, what in this lifetime could possibly be more important to you than your eternal salvation. And your eternal salvation is wrapped up in Christ, who's the guardian of your soul. Good news, huh? Yes, it is. But I'm just saying what the word says. I'm just saying what Peter wrote. I'm just saying the stuff that the Bible has taught us, which is that it's all Christ. It's completely Christ. It's totally Christ. We can trust him. He's the guardian of our souls. And he'll see it through until the day of our full and complete redemption. So if it gets a little tough here and now, you've already won the fight. You already know that for God's sake, that you should submit yourself, lead a quiet life, work with your own hands. Don't be rioting in the streets. Be sure that you represent Christ in a good way. And then people will say to you, what is this hope that you have? then be ready to give a defense. Got it? Got it, sir. Am I still alone up here? No. No. 
Okay, Two questions. Things. Yes, ma'am. In verse 18, this Bible says instead of um, masters who are unreasonable, it says it can be perverse. Yeah. So that has a different... Topic. Yeah, a different feeling to it, doesn't it? Right. He is saying, honor your master. In fact, you know what? I had to stop just for time's sake. But if we had continued on into chapter 3, my ear for some reason is real stuffed up right now and I feel like I'm talking inside my head. It's very weird. I don't know what what just happened to me. If we continue on into chapter 3, which we'll do next week, you're going to see that Peter argues that wives should submit to their husbands. And part of his argument is that your good behavior might win them. And so I would apply that same principle to servants and masters, that even if they are unreasonable, obviously then not saved men, that by your good behavior, it's going to potentially win them. They're going to come and say to you, what is this hope that you have? What is this difference in you? So I think all of it has the same context, the same sense. Do it all for God's sake. God has ordained that you're going to go through these things. But then submit yourself to authorities, to husbands, to wives, for the purpose of them asking, what is it about you? So that you can then declare the goodness of God. So I would say that's the answer to, even if they're perverse, your good behavior is going to redound to the salvation that you've attained. Yeah. But my question is... I can't hear you at all, so make up any question you want. Does your question have to do with refrigerators? Because that's what I'm hearing up here. What if we are asked to do something that is wrong in the eyes of God? Right. Remember we were talking about freedom? And I said, freedom is also the freedom to say no. Before God, none of us should say, well, the society says this is okay. So I'm going to enter into that perversity because enough people agreed with it. I think that there is an appropriate place for being a good citizen. But there is also the right to resist and say, I'm not doing that. I'll give you an example. Don't take the mark of the beast. Yes. Right? Yes. Everybody does it. It's part of the society. You can't buy, sell, or trade without it. Should you do it? No. So that would be a good example where just because society agrees with this perversity, you have the individual conscience that you should say no, again, for God's sake. Make sense? Okay. And what was that about refrigerators? I don't know. <laughs> Anything else? Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.